how will you approach your remaining days? At the beginning of every year, my family, my wife and I, we decide upon a theme, a family theme for us uh, that kind of gives us a focus for the year. And we base it on the fruit of the Spirit, the nine fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians. And so for 2024, we landed on the theme of joy. And kind of mixed feelings about that, about joy. Because on one hand, we have certainly experienced uh, days that are filled with gladness and comfort and ease, and joy comes easy. But already, just in the two months into this year, there have been the delays, the days full of interruption, the days when we feel defeated, exhausted, the unending toil and hard work. There's real days of heartbreak and sorrow, of sickness, the days filled with troubles and just sufferings, and the sleepless nights where we lay awake with worry. So can we really experience this joy? Knowing all of this, how will we approach our remaining days? And where is God in all of this? We need perspective. And Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, and Moses' prayer gives us insight into what we can expect from God. And so like we just read and saw, we can count on the goodness of God all our days. The main idea is this, that we can count on the goodness of God all our days. This psalm, Psalm 90, is unique. It's the only one written by Moses. And it's arranged right after the, a group of psalms where the people have been lamenting because of the leadership failures. See, the Davidic line of kings were promised and prophesied to bring great blessing to the people, but that didn't happen. And because of the leadership failures and the people's own waywardness, they were now in exile. They were far from home, living in oppression, separated from their homeland and their relationship with God, broken. And so that's where the people found themselves. They're praying to God and they're lamenting over these things. And right in their lament, Moses' prayer is inserted as a reminder to the people of God who felt worried and hopeless that beyond any human leader, God has always been their God. So it's from this perspective that Moses meditates. I'm going to summarize verses 1 through 6 for us. And his meditation is simply this that God is our eternal author, that God is our eternal author. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation and kind of give us a, a little more uh, kind of color uh, to these words. And look, look, look at verse 1. And Moses starts off by saying, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. Think about what Moses is saying. He says, from our forefather Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were wanderers, and you called them out of their homeland into a new home. And then for 400 plus years, we were slaves in Egypt. And it seemed like you had forgotten us. We were far from home. And now, where is Moses? 
Remember, he didn't get to go to the promised land. He spent 40 extra years wandering the wilderness with the people. And so for decades, he says, and now even in the wilderness, when we're, not, when we're so close but so far away from home, God, you have been our home through all the generations. See, to Moses, God is not just an idea or a concept or a philosophy to be debated. He is real. You know how God made, made that apparent? You know how Moses can say this? Because remember, God says, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God, and, and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to dwell with you in a very real way. It's not just kind of in our hearts and our imaginations, but in a very real way, I will be with you. And he says, build a tent of meeting so I can meet with you. And when they, when they did, it says the glory of God, the visible dwelling presence of God fell in a pillar of cloud. So by day, they saw a pillar of cloud, and at night, it was a pillar of fire, and it was always right in their midst. And so God, the very real and living God, was right there in their midst. And it says, throughout all their journeys, he was with them, guiding them and with them. So when they were complaining, he was with them. When they're like, oh, we're thirsty, we should just go back to Egypt, the pillar of cloud was right there with them. When they struggled, it's like, oh, no, is God going to care? Is he going to feed us? He was with them. The pillar of cloud was always there. God made his home with his people. Isn't that a gospel truth? That God came to us and made his home with us. Moses knows this about God and says, through all the generations, you have been our home. And I wonder what would it mean to know for you that God is your home. When there's a change in home, when you're about to move, when your home life is somehow shattered, it will never be the same. When relationships are strained, to know that God, throughout all generations, is your home. He makes his home with you. I'll continue on. I'm just going to uh, summarize verses 2 through 6. And we see a contrast here between God and man. It says, before the mountains were born, before he gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. He's the eternal God. And the contrast is here. But you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. For you, a thousand years as a passing day. That's a perspective God has. He is eternal. He is with us, and he is eternal. He's a creator of all things. And here, Moses is reminded in his meditation that he is our eternal author. God is the one who gives us life, and he's the one who takes it away. He gives us life, he guides us through life, he is with us through it all, and he's the one who calls us back home. See, in this country, contrary to popular belief, there's an Americanism that says that we're the captains of our own fate. And we would love to believe that, right, at times. We want to hold on to that. We want to grasp for control of our lives. But even when we insist that I am ultimately in control of my life, I did it my way, those of us who are wise know better. We're not. 
We're not the ones who are ultimately in control of our own destiny. God is our eternal author. Do you recognize, do you recognize that God is God over your life? Do you recognize that our only hope in life and death, that we're not our own, but we belong to God, body and soul? What would that mean for you, knowing that God is your eternal author, that he's the one who is Lord over our lives? A second contrast between the people and God that we see is that, that God is holy. He has called us and created us to be holy. But herein lies a problem, the reality check. The problem in verses 7 through 11 is that we are sinful, that there is sin in our lives and in the world. And our sin angers the holy God. Our sin angers the holy God. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. And Moses, he kind of almost like complains now to God. He says, and we wither beneath your anger. We're overwhelmed by your fury because you spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, and you see them all. You see all of our sins, God, from past, present, and future. You see all of them, even the sins that we're not even aware of yet, even the sins that we hope no one else knows, the sins of our hearts that is not yet readily apparent. You know them and you see them all. Nobody can stand before God, who is a righteous judge. And Moses, he knows the anger of God. He has seen the righteous anger of God work against Israel's enemies and disciplining his own people. He has seen it. And Moses knows that God is rightfully angry with the evil in the world and is angry at the sin in our own lives. God is to be feared. Let's continue on. It says, verse 9, We live our lives beneath your wrath, O God, ending our years with a groan. Seventy years are given to us. Some even live to 80 or a little bit, bit more. Depending on where we're at in life, that might seem like, oh, that's like forever. And others, it's like, oh, no, it goes, up, it goes like that. The years go by quick. And Moses, remember, he lived to 120. So here's this 90, 100-ish year old man writing this psalm in the desert, seeing all that he has seen. And he's saying like, listen, guys, the point is life is short. It's brief. It is brief. And continues on, but even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away that we, we pass. There is no such thing as a trouble-free year. There isn't. Our lives are filled with toil and trouble. This is such an honest and realistic take on life, isn't it? Moses knows he's not messing around. He continues and says, Who can comprehend the power of your anger, God? Your wrath is as awesome as a fear you deserve. You see what Moses is saying? He's saying a couple of things here. He's saying, on one hand, God, you have called us to be your own, and so we are saints, right? That's a biblical language. We are saints. We're called 
by you to be holy. And if you're in our midst, then you're, you're calling us to be like you, to be holy. We're saints on one hand. On the other hand, we're sinners. That's real. There's, there's the impact and reality and the consequences of sin in our own lives, in our own hearts, that we still deal with, even though we're saints and saved. That's also true. Both are true at the same time. What's also true on top of that is, and we suffer there is real trouble and pain in our lives and suffering. And it has little to do, sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with our own sinfulness. Sometimes we're mixed, but sometimes things just happen. So we're saints, we're also sinners, and we're also sufferers. All of these things are true. And that's what he's saying and meditating before God. It's like, God, our lives are filled with pain and trouble, and you know our sins, and we face your anger towards this evil and this trouble. Yet in considering the power of God's anger towards sin, we see that God cares deeply. His anger shows that he cares. Does that make sense? You get angry over the things you care about. Anger is not the opposite of love, right? The opposite of love is indifference. God is not indifferent when he sees evil and sin in the world and in our hearts, he gets angry, rightfully so. So sometimes we kind of wonder, it's like, why is God so angry? Well, he should be, he ought to be. Actually, it's a good thing that God gets angry at evil and sin. It's because he cares. It shows, his, his righteous anger shows that it's his genuine grief over the evil and sin that harms us and separates us. And so, if we know that about God, you look at Moses' response to God's anger. It's kind of both curious and hopeful. Because Moses, he does not run away from God's anger. It's like, God, you're eternal. You're the creator of all things. You give and take away, and you see all of our sins and our lives are so filled with trouble, and we wither beneath your anger and fury. And what's his response to that? Is it to run away? Is it to avoid God now? Is it to reject God? Curiously, no. He says he turns to God in prayer. He turns to God. In other words, he is counting on God to be good. Isn't that incredible? He, he doesn't turn away from God. He's like, oh, you're so angry. We can't deal with it. But his response is, therefore, I'm going to run away. No, he says, therefore, I'm going to turn to you. Because in all of that, I also expect you to be good. I am counting on you to be good towards us. So the last third of this psalm, verse 12 through 17, if I had to summarize it, is, this is kind of where Moses starts asking God in prayer. In summary, his prayer is really, God, in light of all of that, please show us your goodness. Please show us your goodness. That's his prayer. Even though we're aware that sin, our sin is not pleasing to God, even though we know the effect of sin in our hearts separates us from God, we can count on God to be good towards us. Please show us your goodness. Even though our lives are brief and filled with trouble, and it's a mixed bag, God, we're counting on you to be good towards us. Please show us your goodness. So how does God show us his goodness? 
in this prayer, what, what can we expect of God? And Moses instructs us. In verse 12, we see first that God teaches us wisdom. God teaches us wisdom. It says this in verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Meaning, considering all of that, we just talked about perspectives. Like, God, in this life that, we, that you've given us, this relatively brief life, this is filled with the ups and downs. Teach us to really have a clear and honest perspective of that. That it is brief. That we only get a certain number of days that we ourselves don't get to determine. So teach us that if you are the eternal author of our lives, teach us then to get a heart of wisdom. Teach us, give us a perspective that when we get a heart of wisdom. What is a, what is a heart of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And understanding is a knowledge of the Holy One. It's not just an inward like, hmm, just look at my life and what matters to me. But wisdom is, God, what, what matters to you? What's pleasing to you? Help me live with your godly perspective. So in other words, a, getting a heart of wisdom is, is a soft and moldable heart that turns from our inward kind of self-focusedness and learning God's ways so that we live in ways that are pleasing to him. And how good God is good to us is he doesn't just leave us to figure out on our own. He teaches us what is good by giving us his truth through his word and by the help of his Holy Spirit. So he's saying, like, God, teach us wisdom. We need it. We need it to navigate through this life, which is not easy. So God, please show us your goodness by teaching us wisdom. How else does God show us his wisdom or his goodness? God is compassionate to us. He is compassionate. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. He says, Oh Lord, I'll pause right there. You notice in all caps in the English it says L-O-R-D in all capitals. When you see that in all caps, although it's not always so clear in English, it just means Yahweh, the personal name of God. It's different from the title, which is capital L, lowercase O-R-D. That's like sir or master, right? That's just kind of a title and a way to address God. But all caps L-O-R-D means Yahweh, the personal name of God. In this psalm, Moses, if you notice, if you just kind of scan through the, the, the text, he'll say, Lord, Sir, Master, the, the, the title several times. And this is the only point in verse 13 when he says, Yahweh. Why is this significant? Do you remember in Exodus 34 how God reveals himself to Moses? The way he says, reveals himself to Moses is, I'm going to re reveal myself to you, the essence of who I am. I'm going to show you myself, and I'm call out my name. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, who is slow to anger, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving sin. But, does not clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation. So that's how God reveals himself. I am overwhelmingly compassionate. I am just. I will deal with sin. But I am overwhelmingly compassionate, ready to forgive, slow to anger. So when, when Moses says, it's not just sir or master, but Yahweh, Yahweh, the one who is slow to anger, compassionate, willing to forgive, who is steadfast in love to thousands of generations. Come back to us from your fierce anger. 
how long will you delay? Meaning, it's like, how, do it quickly. You know how short our lives are. Take pity. Bring comfort and compassion and kindness on us, your servants. Oh, Lord, we're counting on you to be compassionate because that's who you are. And so satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love. You know, here, here's, here's kind of how I try to make sense of, of God's anger, his holiness, but his compassion and his goodness towards us. A few weeks ago, we were at Kurtunana uh, um, Gorge Park, right? And we were taking a walk, and I, I, brought, I have two young children, two boys. And when you have some, they're, they're like pets. You have to, like, let them outside every day because otherwise they'll tear up the house, right? So uh, we're outside. I'm just trying to get their, get their energy out. But it was a cold day like this. It was puddles everywhere. It had just rained, icy, slushy, and it was just, like, really cold. And so I take, take them outside, and we're walking, and we're probably, like, 20 minutes from the car. We're kind of far away. And then I see all the puddles, and I tell my younger, I tell my kids, don't jump in the puddles. We don't have boots or anything. Don't jump in the puddles. Trust me, it's going to be a bad day. I don't want you to get sick. It's, gonna, it's really cold. And so my older one, like the older one, says, yes, Father. And then he, he complies. My younger one, he kind of goes, yes. And then he kind of touches the edge of a puddle here and there. And I'm like, come on, man. It's like, don't do it. So he kind of plays around for a few, a few minutes, and then we, at the, towards the end of our walk, we're still a ways away from our car, he sees the puddle. I mean, it is like a pond. It is big. And I see him eye it, and I go, don't, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. He wanders over, and I'm telling you, it was a full-bodied, flat-footed, like, whoa, boosh. He jumps right in. I mean, just mud and slush everywhere. I mean, his pants were just ruined, and he's cold. We're still like a mile away from the car, and I was like, Gah! so of course, I was upset. I, I warned him, I told him, and he, he saw that I was upset. I was angry, rightfully so, right? I was like, come on, I told you that. Now you're going to get to <sighs> And so here I am. I'm clearly upset. He sees I'm upset. And he's just kind of uh, not sure of kind of what to do. And then, but he's cold. <laughs> his not, shoes are now filled with water and mud. And so what's done is done. Kind of take a deep breath. And then he comes up and goes like this. I'm like, all right, come on. I pick him up and give him a big hug. And of course, his mud gets on me. I'm a mess. His mess becomes my mess. And now I'm cold and muddy. It's like, ugh. And so he charged back to the car. We got dried up and carry on, our, carry on with our day. I don't share that because I'm proud of that moment. It, I left out some other details. Um, it was not a perfect parenting moment. <laughs> um, I may have raised my voice um, in public to a level that was not, <laughs> you know, but I share that because somehow the message got across to my son that even though he sensed my displeasure and he made a mess of himself, that what he could count on was a hug. In a more, much more perfect way, Scripture tells us that God's anger will last for a moment but his mercy endures forever. 
this is a good news that we could hold on to church, that God is compassionate toward us. So even with a lifetime of just making a mess of ourselves and just being, oh, like just, the good news is that God has made a way for us, that he pours out his compassion, that even while we were still yet sinners, God demonstrated his perfect love in this, that he sent his son to die for our sins, that we may have life, life to the full. God is compassionate toward us. Even in our imperfect and sin-filled lives and experience, that's what we can expect of God. God, please show us your goodness. Please be compassionate towards us. Satisfy us each morning, each morning, because we need it each morning, with your unfailing, steadfast, loyal love, so that we may sing for joy to the end of our lives. You know how we can sing for joy to the end of our lives? It's not because everything is smooth sailing. No. Look at this psalm. Moses is honest with it. It's not. It's not easy. It's filled with trouble and suffering and our own sin. We can sing for joy because we can count on God to be compassionate towards us. That nothing will ever break his unfailing, loyal, covenantal love for us in Christ. Nothing. That's what gives us security and joy, no matter what. When God cry, hears the cries of his people, he moves towards the suffering of his people with compassion. He moves towards sinners who would turn to him that he may show us his goodness. That's what we could count on. And lastly, God com completes his work in us. How does God show us his goodness? He completes his work in us working good even through evil. Let's look at the last verses. Verse 15 says this, Give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Replace the evil years with good. Who but God does that? Moses' forefather and our spiritual forefather said something like, something like this. Do you remember in Genesis, what you meant for evil, God meant for good so that the lives of many will be saved in a way that we cannot imagine, that we don't have control over. This is who God is. That yes, there is great evil and suffering and sin in our lives and filled with trouble and the ups and downs, and yet what we could count on, what we count on is God who is good, who replaces the evil years with good. He turns it into good. He says, let us, your servants, see you work again. God, don't make our experience in relationship with you just a distant memory or something that happened in the past. But God, we need to see you work again right now in our lives in this season. Please remind us, Lord, we need it. Our faith is not that strong. We need to experience and see your goodness too. Now, in a very real way. And even let our children see your glory. Yes, we have our own faith journey, but what about our children? No matter how faithful we are, we can't, we're not the ones who dictate if and when and how our children believe in God. We're not the Savior. And so God, I don't know how and if and when and by what means, but God, please, even the next generation, even our children, please show them your glory so that they too would know and turn to you as God. 
And may the Lord our God show us his approval. Approval means his favor or really his delight. God, show us that you delight in us and make our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. Even the work of our hands, the incompleteness that we'll experience in this life, whether we, we kind of wonder sometimes, will this really count or matter what I'm doing? God, somehow, even if it's beyond our lifetime, beyond what we can see and experience, God, because this is who you are, you're working in all things together for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. God, somehow, that's what you do. You're the redeemer. You're the eternal author who is working for good. And so please make our efforts successful. Church, we can count on God's goodness. We can. This is the good news for us. This is how God answers Moses' prayer specifically and more completely in Jesus. Because when we have faith in Jesus, we know that we no longer face God's wrath because Christ took it upon himself. And in Christ, we are forgiven. That Jesus is working in all things for good because we, we know that it, the way of the cross, that's the message of the cross. That even through great evil and suffering, that there is good and life and salvation everlasting. That's how God works. Surely we carry the cross in following Jesus, but the cross is not our end. Because death is defeated, Jesus rose again. Our, our end and destiny is not the cross, although the cross is the focal point. Our destiny is therefore resurrection and new life. That's the good news. The good news is an empty tomb. We can count on God to be good in our lives. Yes, even through the struggle and suffering and sin. When we look at the cross, we're reminded that ultimately, ultimately, that our destiny, our destiny is resurrection. And this is real wisdom for our lives, isn't it? That is real wisdom and perspective that we need, that we trust that God is with us. Real wisdom is depending on Jesus to deal with our sin completely. Real wisdom is being assured that in all things, God is working for our good. And real wisdom is counting on the goodness of God. So how will you approach your days, church? We count on God to be good and to show us his goodness once more.